Uh, I want to start this morning by thinking about the people who would have attended the services in the nearby church, the little church over on the other side of the property. If you haven't had a chance to go there, I'd, I'd very much uh, recommend doing so. It's a beautiful building. And it recovers something of the, the spiritual heritage of this place. I believe it was built in a, the 13th or 14th century, about 600 years ago. And the people, the community, the farmers, the, whoever lived in this house, the lord of the manor, um, inhabited a world very different from our own. Obviously, they would have been surrounded by the same trees, the same wildlife, uh, the same fields. They wouldn't have had hedges then. That came along later. But it's not so much that that would have been different, but the world uh, that they took for granted, uh, the world that they felt to which they belonged in much the same way that we feel we belong to a world that's made up not just of, 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 of uh, nature, the physical world, but very much of a particular image or sense we have of what this world is. And for people in those days, um, they would have taken it completely for granted that their lives were governed by forces outside their control, not physical forces, but moral forces. Uh, they would have uh, believed, without having to sort of justify it to themselves, that uh, Jesus Christ had died for their sins, that he was the Son of God, that he was resurrected physically, and that the church was the... Um, intermediary between the will of God and um, how we live our lives on earth in accordance with that will. This is not something that we would, they would struggle with in the way that we would struggle with it today. It would have been as self-evident as many of the things we would regard as self-evident the evolution through natural selection, the Big Bang, all of those kinds of things. But also such people inhabited a world that was governed by uh, yearly uh, holidays and rituals and services, um, celebrations, festivities, many of which would still have had their roots in the so-called pagan world of Europe. They would have inhabited a world that was um, inhabited not only by humans and animals, but was populated with spirits and fairies and demons and goblins and all manner of visible and invisible forces that could uh, intervene in their own lives. Spells um, and uh, incantations and witches and all of these things would have simply been part of their daily life, something that was just the way you lived. 
at particular phases of the moon, uh, particular days of the year. Um, the world would have been infused with a kind of sense of importance that this marked a moment of higher time that we looked at yesterday. And people would have then uh, participated uh, with a sense of reverence, a sense of awe um, in f uh, a world that was undergoing transformations and changes that they did not understand, but that inf influenced and permeated their own inner lives. Now, what has this got to do with um, what we're talking about here? I think it has a lot to do with helping us understand what we mean by the word secular. That secularity is not um, just a, a description of, of how we live today, but it's a description of how we live today in contrast to how people lived in the past. And I mentioned yesterday the philosopher Charles Taylor, um, and his book, A Secular Age. And he declares at the beginning of this book that what he's trying to do is to answer the question, how come in 1500 in Europe, around the time this church would have been uh, built, people believed automatically in the existence of God and angels and spirits and so on, and how come today, 500 years later, virtually nobody believes in these things? What happened in that intervening period? What were the uh, forces at work, the political, religious, philosophical, scientific um, events that took place that have changed us from the sort of people who would have gone to that church when it was built, to the sort of people we are now. So secularity um, has a lot to do with um, the kind of selves that we are. And the way that Taylor um, tries to understand this is by making a difference between two kinds of self what he calls a porous self and what he calls a buffered self. A porous self and a buffered self. I'll explain. Porous means it's like a cloth that if you, uh, if you, if you put a piece of cloth over a, 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 a container and you pour water in it, the cloth is porous and the water will go through. If you covered that container, say, with a piece of plastic and you poured water on it, the water wouldn't go through. The water would bounce off. And Taylor compares the, the porous self to a self that somehow is open to and can somehow be permeated by um, forces and values and meanings that exist out in the world. Whereas a buffered self is a self that somehow become more immune or cut off or isolated, protected 
against meanings that come into us from outside our own minds. And again, I'll give a very simple example of this. Uh, in most Buddhist countries, even today, it's believed that um, on the full moon of the fourth lunar month, which is called Vesak, that this marks the day of the Buddha's enlightenment. Some Buddhists believe it marks the day of his birth, his enlightenment, and his death. And as a consequence, if you recite prayers or you make offerings to the monastery or you do some virtuous act, that on that day, the, uh, the, the, the virtue will be multiplied many, many times. In other words, you do exactly the same thing as you might have done the day before, but because it occurs on that day, its power is amplified. In other words, the merit or the benefit or the goodness that is accrued from chanting a thousand omanipedme hongs, for example, um, will, uh, uh, will, will, will have an extraordinary greater benefit than the same thing done the day before. Now, for, many, for, for modern secular people, um, that simply doesn't make any sense. And we would tend to um, uh, give importance not to the, the full moon or the fact that the Buddha is supposedly born on that day, but we would almost instinctively say, no, what matters is not the, 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 the phase of the moon on that month. It's to do with the sincerity of your intentions. That's where meaning and value reside, is purely within, inside our own self. The purity of our intentions, the sincerity of our intentions. Now, of course, Buddhism says that too. But nonetheless, culturally, um, there is a feeling that, that value and meaning reside outside of our minds in the world somewhere, in cosmic forces. We can believe, as many Buddhists do, believe in blessings that come from invisible bodhisattvas, for example, that exist out there somewhere. Whereas nowadays, a Western Buddhist practitioner would probably say, well, you know, the bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, um, that's really just a way of talking about the principle of compassion. And there's nothing outside. Avalokiteshvara is a symbol, um, is an archetype. Once again, we do the same thing. We internalize that value to make it something that is going on within our own more buffered self. So the buffered self is one that has assumed all moral, spiritual meaning uh, and value into its own borders. And the world has become uh, completely divested of any intrinsic meaning or value. Now, the, 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 the reasons as to how this came about are long and complicated, and most of Charles Taylor's book is an attempt to try to understand that. But there are certain sort of key 
points, one of which is, particularly in northern European countries, uh, the Protestant Reformation, in which your relationship to God was no longer mediated by the church or by priests, but it was something that became a deeply personal relationship that occurred between you and God. In other words, there's a breakdown of a sort of intermediary uh, institution or, or body of people who mediate the power of God or the love of God into your life. It's become your own. You have the Renaissance in which there's a recovery of the ancient um, traditions of Greece and Rome, uh, many of which are, in a sense, deeply rational. And there is the whole emergence of the European Enlightenment of uh, scientific understanding, which again um, is premised on a sort of a distancing of yourself from the natural world in order to sort of see it with clear objectivity and detachment. And then politically, um, this uh, is the context within which there is the emergence of, uh, of capitalism and the idea of the individual in many respects being a, a function of uh, an economic system um, in which each person has their own rights, their own role, their own value, um, but it's somehow you know, no longer infused with or participating in uh, a sense of being part of a wider world. And one could go on and on. And so there are pluses and minuses here. On the one hand, we gain a certain moral autonomy and responsibility, personal responsibility. We also perhaps gain a freedom from certain irrational fears and what we would called superstition. But at the same time, we've paid a price in becoming atomized individuals. Um, we've become closed in on ourselves. And we've become alienated, both from the natural world and also, in some senses, from one another. And this is very much the condition of modernity that we find... Um, described, say, in the novels of Kafka or the plays of Beckett. Um, and again, I don't need to go into much detail there. It's something so familiar to us, so resonant in our culture. Now, another way in which um, we can describe this situation is to follow the ideas of uh, Max Weber, the, the sociologist, and he calls this experience of atomization. Um, he calls it uh, an experience of disenchantment. That uh, the abandonment of religion as a kind of guiding feature of our life um, and the enclosing of value purely within our own subjective minds um, has also led to us inhabiting a world that is stripped of wonder and mystery and has become reduced to a world of rationality 
utility and progress. So the benefits were that we supposedly gain from that um, are go hand in hand with the sense that our lives sometimes feel very hollow. Uh, and in very materially affluent societies like our own, uh, people often uh, suffer from a crisis of meaninglessness. It doesn't have any meaning anymore. And this can lead, as we know only too well, to pathologies, so anxieties, depressions, uh, suicidal tendencies. Now, of course, things are not quite as clear-cut as Canadian philosophers would perhaps like them to be. I don't think the world is quite so neatly divided between a period of their being poorer selves, living in an enchanted world, and um, atomized, buffered selves, living in a kind of hollow, uh, meaningless world. But there seems to be a spectrum that goes across the, um, between the two. Um, if you go into a New Age bookshop in Totnes, you'll find there are probably plenty of people who have no problems with being porous selves. And I think also, and I don't want to make fun of that, um, because I think also uh, people who live closer to nature, uh, people who work with the earth, uh, people who are passionate about the environment, uh, they too feel that somehow we have estranged ourselves uh, from a felt participation in the natural world. And much of their anger and, and, and despair is because uh, people don't seem to realize the damage they're causing. That we've lost that intuitive, empathetic relationship with nature such that we treat it simply as a commodity, as something to use, as something to um, transform for our own personal benefits. And there may also be people still who, who do inhabit a world of fairies and angels and all these things that are very, very real for them. Uh, and, but again, a lot of secular people would regard them either as being slightly nutty or slightly crazy even, uh, or simply out of touch with the way things really are. But I don't think it's quite as clear-cut as that. That... Um, uh, we live in a world in which there are both highly secularized people. We might count ourselves more on that end of the spectrum. Perhaps not. And others who are, as it were, still inhabiting, and particularly outside of Western Europe and North America, in the so-called third world, uh, for whom this porous relationship with the world continues. <coughs> So it's a complicated picture. But I think it's a useful one in understanding what we mean by uh, this idea of secularity. I mean, personally, I feel myself to be a very secularized kind of person. Um, I, even when I was studying 
Tibetan Buddhism and living in Tibetan communities in India, um, although I was trying to believe all the things I was being told, there was a part of me that resisted it, a part of me that couldn't really believe that there were deities out there sending blessings in and things like that. But I also realized in living in Tibetan communities in India that um, when there was an event where the community believed that a spirit, for example, was on the loose, an evil spirit, uh, I participated, I, I was present at a period in, in, in Dharamsala where the Tibetans really believed there was an evil spirit on the loose. And if everybody around you believes that, and they do all kinds of ritualistic things like putting, you know, colored crosses everywhere, it, you realize how quickly you can be drawn into that on a very visceral level. It's very, very uh, infectious, that way of thinking. So in some sense, our, you know, our bufferedness is not perhaps as solid as we might think it is. And it could be that we reinforce it by, in a sense, trying to sort of hold on to that perspective rather rigidly, in a way. In, um, in our own history, there have also been a number of movements that have sought to, um, uh, to, to reject this atomization, this cut-offness. Uh, one thinks particularly of the Romantics, people like Wordsworth and Coleridge, Keats, uh, Goethe in Germany, um, who, who rebelled against this estrangement from the world and sought to somehow recover it. But I think the difficulty for many of us is that uh, the spell has been broken now and it would probably be very difficult to return to a porous sense of self. Or it would require an enormous amount of work. But I suspect, in fact, that we can't go back in that way. That if we're to resolve these uh, crises of alienation, isolation, and so on, we're going to have to find some other approach. So this brings us, I think, to um, a, a, a rather interesting point regarding our relationship to Buddhism. Because the Buddhism that we're practicing in, you know, today um, might come from the same texts, it might come from the same lineages of teaching, it might be the same exercises, but the person, the kind of self, the kind of person who's doing these practices is quite different in many respects to the sort of people who would have practiced them in the earlier history of the tradition. More porous selves, as it were. One might argue that the practice of mindfulness um, is, uh, has also, can all, is also being co-opted um, into the securing of a buffered self. That by becoming mindful and attentive uh, and not reacting, this could also be seen as, as, as just a way of 
of, of giving us greater assurance that we're somehow not you know, subject to these irrational forces and fears, but can gain some sort of detachment and independence from them, which is very much the project of this buffering, this cutting ourselves off. So the, the, the distance that mindfulness can afford us could also serve perhaps to um, increase that sense of alienation. We might feel more comfortable in it, but it might still be a condition of alienation. So if we think of uh, uh, what we're calling a, a secular approach to Buddhism, we're not thinking, or I'm not thinking, of trying to bring Buddhism down to the level of secularity. That, I think, would be a big mistake. But rather to recognize that Buddhist thought and Buddhist practice has to somehow come to terms with, enter into a conversation with, the secular world, not only of which we are a part, but has, we, but has been internalized within ourselves. Secularity is not out there. Secularity is in here. And we didn't necessarily choose to be this way. That was the way our culture, our education, our society, our Western history has formed us. It's very difficult to see it because it's just simply, very often, just the way we are. The way we instinctively feel ourselves to be. But the way that I or you might instinctively feel to be as a person is probably quite different to that of the people who worshipped in that church 500 years ago. And I think this therefore presents enormous challenges to, to Buddhism. I don't think Buddhism can just be imported in one of its Asian forms and just taken up and practiced as though nothing had changed. There was nothing different in our world. Uh, somehow, the Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist practices are addressing a different set of conditions, personal conditions, social conditions. And in order to find um, an appropriate form or practice, we may have to rethink what the Dharma is about uh, in a very radical way. One thing that is clear from even a cursory look at the history of Buddhism is that Buddhism has a flexibility. It's able to adapt to very different situations. Well, India or China or Tibet or wherever it goes, it takes on a new form. It evolves a new kind of language. It's still true to the same core values, but it expresses itself, it embodies itself in very different ways. And the challenge we face today is the challenge of Buddhism being able to rethink itself, to re-embody itself in ways that are effective in dealing with the kinds of uh, spiritual crises that buffered, secularized people 
uh, are undergoing. And if we think of the Dharma as, um, in a very central sense, a kind of uh, medicine, a kind of therapy, a kind of healing, then what we're seeking to heal, what we're seeking to resolve, um, are not necessarily the same kinds of problems or, 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 uh, or uh, uh, pathologies that would have been the case in Tibet or in Japan or in Sri Lanka a hundred or more years ago. So in some ways, I think we have to go back to the very beginnings of the tradition in order to tap into what it is that is universal rather than a teaching or a practice that has been adapted to meet the needs of Japanese or Tibetans or or Burmese. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so important to uh, recover some of these very early texts and to try to read them with fresh eyes. And so we looked yesterday, for example, um, at this idea of apamada, of care, of non-drunkenness. And the very way we thought about it, or I thought about it, again, drew on our own culture from Montaigne and other figures of the Renaissance, but also uh, sought to try to um, bring it alive again in a way that spoke to the sort of condition that we find ourselves in as human beings. And so the whole you know, attempt to rethink it as, as care, as caring, as carefulness, is bringing in a, a way of thinking that probably wasn't there in the early traditions. But it perhaps, at least in my case, I find it somehow more uh, effective in communicating what these values mean and what they may be able to support us in doing in our lives. What I want to look at today goes back um, perhaps even more to the roots of the tradition, and that is uh, to try to understand the nature of the Buddha's enlightenment, the awakening. And again, this is something that is uh, obviously central to the tradition, and uh, it's a word that is widely used, often quite, you know, I think quite uncritically. Uh, we think of the Buddha was enlightened. We maybe think that, well, also Rumi was enlightened. We have all these enlightened people. But we don't necessarily ask a more difficult question, namely, enlightened about what? Awakened to what? And that's what I'd like to look at this morning. Um, but again, as a means whereby to uh, start you know, getting clearer about what this practice is about and therefore how it might address our own contemporary condition, both as individuals, as well as a society, as well as a community of people living on earth. One of the oldest accounts we find in the discourses, in the suttas, um, of the Buddha's awakening, 
is uh, in a text called the, um, the Noble Quest. The Noble Quest. It's Majjhima Nikaya 26, if you want to look it up. And it's an unusual text because the Buddha actually talks about himself. He talks about his own, his own process, as we'd call it today. And it's in that text he describes his renunciation, his leaving home, his practicing deep forms of jhanic absorption with a couple of teachers, but then not really finding any answer to what was most pressing for him. He, well, he doesn't actually say this in the text, but he then, as it were, goes to Bodhgaya, sits beneath the tree and so on. However, we understand that. But in any case... Uh, we have a passage here in which he describes uh, his awakening. He talks of it as, as, as actually arriving at what he calls the Dharma. And I'll read the passage and then reflect on it a bit. Uh, he says, This Dharma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed or felt by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground, this hyphen conditionality, conditioned arising, and also hard to see this ground, the stilling of inclinations, the relinquishing of bases, the fading away of reactivity, desirelessness, stopping nirvana. <coughs> now again, we will probably or inevitably read this text in ways that uh, speak to our own condition. You can't but do that. We're not disinterested academics trying to get a philological understanding of what's going on here. What the text, I think, very clearly states is that this awakening uh, is not um, the, uh, some cognitive experience in which uh, you suddenly see the nature of reality. That language is quite alien to this text. And yet many Buddhist traditions uh, present enlightenment or awakening as coming to some kind of deep, meditative, mystical insight into the nature of some ultimate truth, whether they call that emptiness or not-self or the Buddha nature or the one mind or the Dharmadhatu or pure consciousness or whatever it is, doesn't matter. The point is that Buddhist tradition has uh, tended to adopt 
a language of truth and knowing the truth. But in this passage, neither the word truth is used nor the word knowing. There's no word here uh, with the root hinya, to know. But instead, the Buddha uses the word to see with the eyes, dasati, to see. And this seeing is brought about not by gaining some privileged knowledge, but it is brought about through undergoing some kind of uh, shift within one's basic perspective on life itself. And he describes this shift as a shift from being what he calls delighting and reveling in one's place to what he calls seeing one's ground. So it's a shift from place to ground. Now, in the language of um, the buffered and the poorest self, one might today read this text as, as place referring to one's enclosed, self-centered uh, point of view on the world and ground as referring to that which uh, transcends the narrowness of one's place and opens one to the reality of life itself. And this seems to be implied. At some level, the Buddha is simply engaging in word play because the words in Pali for place, which is alaya, and ground, which is tanna, in some senses are fairly synonymous if used you know, just in a dictionary out of context. So what he's talking about is how we can have a quite different relationship to ourselves depending on what we consider to be our, our place or our ground. And his analysis of the human condition is that uh, there is a very, very deep tendency to become preoccupied with where you feel safe. Nowadays we call this one's comfort zone. And one's place, in a way, is where you feel comfortable. It's what gives you a sense of security, a sense of identity. So your place, you might identify, for example, with being British or English or Scottish nowadays, of course, is the big debate. Um, but in other words, you, get, have, you have a national identity or you live in a city and you identify with being a Londoner or a Mancunian or a Parisien or Parisienne. And although you might not think about that a lot, nonetheless, there's a certain sense of belonging, a certain sense of identity which makes you feel secure, that you, you, that you have a place in the world. And your place can also extend beyond your geography into your position in society. Your place 
in the social order. You know, how, you know, where you stand in relationship to others in your community. You know, your position. Do you have an important position or do you have a lowly position or no position? Who do I defer to? Who do I expect to defer to me? Etc., etc. That's also your place. And we can take it, you know, further still. Our place is also defined by our religious beliefs, uh, our religious affiliations. I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim. That's also your place in the world. Or it might have to do with your political position. You know, what, whether you're a conservative or a, uh, a liberal or whatever it might be. And if we push it back even further, it starts to have to do with our very sense of being me. That somewhere inside my body-mind there is some sort of irreducible core of me. And that's what I can fall back on if everything else fails. At least I'm still me. And so the Buddha is saying, as long as you are preoccupied with those sorts of um, places, positions, identities, belongings, you will, it will be very difficult to, to see your ground. So the, 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 your sense of place might give you a degree of security, a degree of identity, a sense of belonging, of being someone. And that might have certain advantages. It's something, you know, that is quite natural. But it has the side effect of somehow making you blind or anesthetizing you to the actual ground of your life. And he calls the ground... Um, paticca samupada this is often translated in English as dependent origination it's a very tricky term um, we, we sometimes use the word conditionality but basically what it's referring to is the, um, is, the is the natural process of causal causes and effects that um, underpin the very workings of the world and not only of the world, of ourselves. Um, there's a famous statement uh, attributed to Sariputta, one of the Buddha's disciples, where he says, he quotes the Buddha as saying, uh, the one who beholds uh, the Dharma beholds conditionality and the one who beholds or sees Conditionality sees the Dharma. The two are identical. In other words, the Buddha's teaching is about recovering a sense of the conditioned uh, world, the conditioned life that unfolds, rises, passes, dies in each moment. In other words, what we would perhaps today call the natural world, the world of nature, which in some ways is completely out of our control. 
it's, it's been born, it lives for a while, it dies. And not only is it undergoing its own sort of natural causative um, process, but also it makes us aware that we too are implicated in that causal world itself. In other words, what we experience now is the result of what's happened in the past. Now we'd understand this as our biological evolution, our upbringing as children, our social conditioning, our own choices and decisions we've made in our lives that have brought us to where we are now. And that position we're in now affords us the opportunity to think and speak and act and live in ways that will have consequences in the future. That's basically what this idea of conditionality is about. And it has nothing at all to do with you know, how important we are in our golf club or um, you know, which country we belong to or what religion we believe in. It's got nothing to do with that. It has to do with uh, touching something uh, that transcends all of those identities and belongings and allows us to reconnect with that of which we are uh, utterly um, part of, namely the natural world. So this uh, awakening um, is, uh, is about uh, waking up uh, to the fact of being alive uh, in a very sort of primal sense. But there's another aspect of it too. He says it's difficult to see the ground of conditionality when you're preoccupied with your, your place. But it's also difficult to see another ground which he calls the stilling of inclinations, the fading away of reactivity, stopping, and this curious word, nirvana. That's also a ground in this text. But this is not a ground of conditionality. This is a ground in which we uh, glimpse the freedom from being determined or conditioned by our habitual reactive patterns. Uh, it's a very different way of looking at it. And the reactive patterns that are traditionally listed in Buddhism um, are greed and hatred and delusion, the three fires, as they're called, or the three poisons. So when we find ourselves in a frame of mind, uh, perhaps when we're meditating or perhaps simply when we're going for a walk in the woods, it doesn't really matter. But there are moments in life when that preoccupation with our reactions and our desires and our fears and our uh, anxieties you know, subsides, falls, falls away. And we're left in this kind of open, clear 
spaciousness that's free from the um, imperatives and the demands and the pressures of our desires and our fears. And that is nirvana. Nirvana is not some sort of Buddhist heaven or something you experience after many, many years and lifetimes of, of monastic life. But actually, it's a possibility that is uh, available in each moment. And in many ways, what we're doing in a retreat like this is we're seeking to create the conditions whereby those uh, moments, those periods of, um, uh, of non-reactivity uh, can be optimized. So that when we settle into meditation, when we come to our breath or our awareness of the sounds or generating metta, these are all strategies to get us out of our preoccupation with our place on the one hand and out of being determined or conditioned or driven by our reactivity on the other. And this is the language we find in this very early text where the, the Buddha uses to describe being awake, being awakened, being an awake one. So this wakefulness is clearly not just some state of, of, of deep understanding, but it's actually about um, living or dwelling um, on the earth in another way altogether. And it's here, I think, uh, if we interpret this passage in this way, um, that we might get some sort of clue as to how we might uh, resolve uh, the dilemma of being a secular, buffered self. Now, Charles Taylor, I don't think, knows anything about Buddhism, so I doubt his thinking is remotely informed by this. And at the same time, as a, 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 as a secular sort of person, me, I find passages like this to be particularly um, powerful because they seem to address the existential condition that I find myself in. Now what's curious is that this particular text is not given much importance at all in traditional Buddhism. It didn't seem to speak to Buddhists much in the past, or at least the Buddhists who were the ones who chose which texts were important. And my reading of these early uh, canonical discourses um, more and more makes me aware that there is no consistent party line in the Buddhist canon. Each Buddhist tradition, be it Theravada, be it Tibetan, be it Chinese or whatever, has always selected certain texts, certain teachings, certain practices 
out of all of the many texts and practices that are actually mentioned in the discourses. In other words, the, the, the canon, um, and I'm talking here mainly of the canon as we know it in Pali, um, is thousands of pages long. And most Buddhists, through most Buddhist history, are only, have only really been aware of tiny bits of it. And that, I think, is a very um, encouraging thing. Because it means that we're not, therefore, beholden to any particular orthodoxy. What orthodoxy means is that a particular community, and often a particular you know, person, usually a monk, has arrived at a, an interpretation of the Buddha's teaching, um, drawing upon relatively uh, uh, small parts of the overall canon. And that has then been used as the basis for arriving at a, a coherent and a consistent uh, theory as to what Buddhism is that addresses and speaks to the needs of people in those historical times. And that's, I feel, what, how Buddhism actually um, survives, is because it has a sufficient wealth of materials that different uh, uh, communities, different uh, uh, people in different times can draw from it and find nourishment or insight or support or practice that speaks to their condition. So what I've been doing over the last few years is trying to sort of select from the canon passages that seem particularly appropriate to the secular condition. But again, this is nothing new. The Chinese did exactly the same too. Maybe they weren't so self-conscious about it. They didn't maybe have the same sort of historical sense that we do. But nonetheless, that's what happens. So this particular account of the awakening is quite different from some of the more better-known ones. The one that most traditional Buddhists refer to is where the Buddha goes through the different uh, jhanas, the different absorptions, gets to the fourth jhana, then he has access to these uh, idis, these uh, supernatural uh, powers that enable him to see all of his past lives, uh, enable him to understand the workings of the law of karma. And then in the later uh, phases of the night, he comes to understand the Four Noble Truths, he comes to understand the uh, elimination of the asavas, the effluences, and then he becomes the Buddha. That's become the passage that most traditional Buddhists prefer. But in this text here, there's no mention of the jhanas, there's no mention of past lives, there's no mention of the law of karma at all. There's no mention of the asavas, so the canon is rich enough to provide um, further uh, readings and narratives and stories that have not yet been explored. 
And so the approach that any new community will seek to evolve is one that will be rooted in the same uh, set of materials, the suttas, the discourses, but will select and interpret them in ways that address you know, their particular dilemma at their particular time in history, in their particular uh, forms of society, in their particular uh, worlds that they inhabit. So I'll leave that there today. And um, in terms of our, uh, of our meditation, our practice, it might be helpful to just reflect on this idea of this twofold ground. On the one hand, the, the seeing of the conditioned nature of life, both physically, emotionally, mentally, in nature itself, and also to think of this ground as one in which there is a, uh, an opening to, to a possibility of living in this world undetermined or uninflected by our attachments, our fears, our hatreds, our egoism, and so on. And how, by living in or dwelling in such a ground, we may be able to uh, resolve some of the issues that cause us to be stuck in a particular place and how that place in a secular world is something like what Taylor calls uh, an isolated, atomized, disenchanted and buffered self. So we now have a period of walking meditation and um, we'll meet again at a quarter to twelve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate